And welcome to yet another edition of Hunter Gatherers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories, as we explore election year 1972. As always, broadcasting from our historic studios in New Orleans on Magazine Street, I am Christopher Tidmore. Joined, coming to us, I believe, from Maine today, is our host of our program, one Curtis Robinson. And Curtis, how goes it today? Well, it goes well on the coast of Maine, I can tell you that. The recent weather's cleared out, things are beautiful, and I have to say, though, you cannot walk within 10 feet of a television without being grabbed by some uh, political commercial. You know you're in October of an election year because the leaves have turned and so has the rhetoric. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, there's actually competition going on in Maine right now for various offices, including the 2nd District. There's competition going on all over the country. For those that listen to my regular radio show on iHeartMedia, you, you, you hear me breaking down the races. But I bring all this out, this competition in Oregon, which is returning to the Republican ranks theoretically for governor and a few congressional seats for the first time almost since Nixon, or at least since the 70s. It's you've got a situation where the, the, the race is tightened to effectively a one or two point preference between the parties. And it could go either way in the Senate and the House. Um, Republicans are probably well, favored. Very, very yeah. uh, 1972. Very that was my point. That's about as far away from very, 72 very as you could. <laughs> you know, we, we talked about that in previous things. One of the things that's hard to realize is that Nixon won. How does someone win 49 of the states? That that always sticks with us. And, and for people who are... You know, we're, we're tracking the book. We're in October in the book. And we're talking October. And... People may remember that in previous months, Hunter had gone through some elaborate on-paper way that McGovern could still pull it out. It's October now in the book, and there's no such hope shiny for him anymore. And one of the first things that jumped out at me, I hadn't noticed this before, was... You know, all of the Hunter chapters have these subheads that are sort of the outline of what you're about to read. And actually, when I worked with Hunter, that was one of my specialties. I love to go through the subheads with him. October only has one, and it is, ask not for whom the bell tolls. And it begins, due to circumstances beyond my control, I would rather not write anything about the 1972 presidential election, or actually presidential campaign at this time. On Tuesday, November 7th, I will get out of bed long enough to go down to the polling place and vote for George McGovern. He says, then he says, afterward, I will drive back to the house, lock the front door, get back in bed, and watch television as long as necessary. It will probably be a while before the angst lifts. But whenever it happens, I will get out of bed again and start writing the mean, cold-blooded bummer that I was not quite ready for today. <laughs> that is the most upbeat thing in the chapter. From there, it gets dark. There's a, a from there, it, only 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 in this chapter can you say from there it gets dark. <laughs> it's it gets like dark. fans of the book will remember it. Uh, this chapter for the famous thing where he talks about Nixon becoming a werewolf and going down trying to find which window of the Watergate is Martha Mitchell's apartment and. Some some of the strange stuff of that. He also gets into the the thing about uh, the that McGovern and Nixon represented the opposite sides of that. It says the the split personality and polarized instincts that almost everybody except Americans has long taken for granted as the key to our national character. 
Well, there you have it. Um. But you know what's interesting <laughs> to me about the chapter, and I, I, because I, I've gone through the whole book and I'm watching the, the presidential sweepstakes and I'm comparing it to this year, because after all, that's why for those that have not been listening to the last few podcasts, Curtis brought up the idea of doing fear and loathing on the campaign trail, 1972, and taking a month each time because we're at the 50th anniversary and we're in a very contentious political environment with people that bear more than a striking resemblance to some of the players in the book. But the interesting part to me is, so this is 1972, he's distraught and all this, McGovern is going to get killed, yet there's not even a conversation in the book, not even a thought process well, is Nixon going to get a Republican Congress? Is this going to happen? It, there's a mention of it earlier at one point, but it's so absurd that people wouldn't split their ballots and vote Democratic down ticket. And in point of fact, that's what happens. Uh, Nixon wins overwhelmingly, but there are very few Republican comparative gains in the House. Whereas now, I, I have to say, one, one of my favorite politicians in America is Tommy Thompson, uh, mainly because he announced his presidential race on my radio show when he ran. A little good it did him, but, you know. But he was he and Jim Doyle, the uh, two governors to the 90s and the 2000s, Dem- Republican and Democrat of Wisconsin, came on, and they said, you know, it was very common for people to vote for us and vote Democratic at the top of the ticket or vote. And they were on the same ticket for years, so it was Thompson at the top and, and Doyle for attorney general. And he says, that would never happen now. That was the major difference of 1972. Everybody's going in and rejecting McGovern, but they're voting Democratic down the ticket to the point where the Democrats, I think the Republicans gain like seven seats. It's still a supermajority practically for the Democrats in the Congress. And that no one even suggests that, that is, there's anything unusual about that. Historically, it's when unusual. That, yeah. the, the other thing that uh, the lack of discussion of that jumps out because that would be the discussion now yeah. because – Part of the campaign would be, you know, if I don't have the House and Senate, how can I get my agenda through? Yeah. But the other thing that, that has always struck me as remarkable is there's no even peripheral conversation about Watergate at this point. And, you know, investigations are now so much a part of, of everyday political life. I mean, I think there are six investigations into President Trump at this point. And and, and I, I found that. So, so October is a good chance to look at omissions. And also, you know, he's warming up for a big recap in November that he does in a um, an interview format, which which I find I also find interesting. But October is the the shortest of the chapters. It's the most bleak. At the end of the day, it's still it's still part of the fabric of of comparing seventy two. I mean, the biggest comparison, of course, is that that's a presidential year and he's covering a presidential race, whereas this year is is a midterm. Uh, yeah, but you, but you'd you be, cringe yeah, but, at how much this is going to you, you cringe at how much this is going to ring true in twenty twenty four when it's an actual presidential race. But the first thing, and, and you know, and and I, I really, first of all, um, the idea well, there's the, the, something he kind of references when he's talking about about Wallace is the fact that a lot of Republicans don't particularly like Nixon, but they know he can win. Which, I at first I was reading as, this is a living embodiment of Trump in a way, and then I realized, no, it's not. Republicans like Trump, and they're kind of ignoring the fact that he can't win, or that he'd be difficult to win, or whatever. Paul Ryan came out, and he did a, it looked like it was an interview filmed with a camera phone. 
but it must have been because he was unusually honest. And Ryan said, what we're not talking about is the fact that almost any other candidate is stronger than Trump to win the White House, and sooner or later that'll come out. And of course, everybody said, yeah, that we said that in 2016, and he still won, but it all is... The point. Yes, the the yeah. I, look. I tell people all the time. I'm like, <laughs> I, I get I get the whole we can't run. Trump won't run because Trump can't win. And I'm like, a, I would be shocked if he feels that way. And b, how can you say he cannot win? You know, 2016. I remember all all kinds of people saying he can't win. He can't win. Up until like midway of election night, I'm like, well, I've seen a map of the United States, <laughs> and this is you know I know where this is headed now. And, you know, and it's also hard to focus on October now. I think people are getting ahead of themselves. I've never seen an election that feels more like a beginning than an end. Yeah, God, this, man. This, feels, this, this feels more like, you know, preseason's over. They're going to tip it up and and 2024 begins now, you know, and and you look forward to November and in, in the other campaign trailer. This is the way November begins to cheat ahead a little bit. It was dark when we took off from Long Beach. I was standing in the cockpit with a joint in one hand and a glass of Jack Daniels in the other as we boomed off the runway and up, up, up into the cold, black emptiness of a Monday night sky three miles above Southern California. And he goes on. And then later he starts talking about the zoo plane. That's that's one of his, you know, the, the, the Jack Daniels segment of the campaign, I think, had kicked in at that point. And he was... Um, and, you know, so, so November is a great chapter of this book. October, he starts off saying, I don't feel like writing it, and then he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it, has the, yeah. it has the whiff. October has the whiff of contractual obligation about it. I'm reading these chapters, and as you get closer to the election, it's, it, each chapter, each month, reflects one of the stages of grief, like denial bargaining, shock, acceptance, you know, and, and finally at the end of the book, it's kind of a, a resolution level and it's, he's dealing with the fact that it has Nixon. And of course, everybody's reading the book now is foreshadowing what's about to happen, which he's, he's, well, that's true. Yeah, and so. and we, of course, we of course know the end, but I would say that I had always admired on the previous reading, I'd always admired his analysis and that's what I had remembered, the way he sort of took apart McGovern's indecisiveness and the di- the difference between the reality of the indecisiveness and the perception. And then also the, the positioning of the, uh, you know, Richard Nixon doll, you know, portrayed in the. Uh, I, but what struck me now and now we're in October, uh, he'll go into the analysis is how how his perception going forward. I mean, when we began this book. McGovern was not a front runner. McGovern wasn't a top three. And yet early on, he spots the potential there. And I, I think I always found that. I mean, if you want to have a chill go down your spines, go back and read some of the things he wrote before 9-11. Yeah, tell me. A bit ominous about continuous war. And you're like, oh, well, that was before that. That said, his anticipation has been great. And I really think that his ability to to take apart the campaign – Really reminds you that, it, as, as someone said, that it, it's probably the least fact-filled and, and, and most truthful of, of the campaign books. And I, I just found it really, really interesting. I'm, I can't wait for uh, 
the November stuff to come around because that's the seal rock in and some of the stuff that he and I talked about quite a lot. And folks, if it seems like we're having a slightly shorter episode, it's because it's the shortest chapter in the book. It, it kind of, It's hard to analyze this. I will say, and there was a culmination I was thinking about, and, and we're, we're, a lot of this has been comparing and contrasting this year. We try not to do too much contemporary politics. But we, it's obviously the 50th anniversary we're making the parallels. One parallel we haven't talked about is the fact that, and, he, and, and to Hunter this was particularly resonant because this defined him, he was a rural, he was a, a, a white from rural America in an area that had been a Democratic stronghold his entire life. And this in the 72 election, you know, Eisenhower is an interesting scenario, but basically in the 72 election, it's the first time that rural whites, particularly in the South or in the, in the border states, are going to come out for the Republicans voting on social issues. The, it's both the war, but also this is uh, the whole the acid amnesty and abortion, the whole is. And it's going to be the beginning of a trend. It's interesting, though, Nixon, some of the audience knows I was a research assistant to Stephen Ambrose, and one of the things Ambrose always made clear was that Nixon was the first, well, Eisenhower kind of did it, Nixon was the first Republican politician that became very comfortable with the idea of the New Deal. To some extent, the Great Society. He was the founder of the EPA, and he he himself embraced it, and that allowed a, the rule vote to come to him. And I was reading something, and they and it basically it was it was in the it was in the New Statesman, which it's not exactly a right wing journal. They made the comment. He says the New Deal coalition and the Trump coalition are the exact same coalition because they're basically rural whites who benefited from the New Deal. And if you look at Trump being not particularly conservative or small government and spending money, it's because he's reflecting his coalition more effectively than people uh, resonate. And Nixon did the same thing. Nixon didn't believe in small government. He believed in or what we think of as Reaganite themes. He believed in something very distinct. It was sort of a fusion politics. And I think that's the, the part of the defeat of McGovern that people don't say because they didn't feel threatened at the time by Richard Nixon's economic and social views, if you get what I'm saying. Well, to this day, people are surprised by Richard Nixon's social views and, and, and that EPA is a great example of that he created that. But, you know, I, th- I think that... Uh, and, and the other thing that he basically wanted Medicare for all. <laughs> if, if you, well, yeah, if you, yeah, that's literally what he was basically proposing. Yes, it was, it was it was truly a different era. Even though you know abortion was probably one of the biggest uh, issues fifty years ago, and it's probably one of the biggest issues today. So you you and you start to look at that. But the, when you bring it around to Hunter, Hunter wrote something. It's not in this chapter, but he wrote that about Nixon in terms of objective and subjective journalism. He said, uh, objectively, you know, on paper, he, Hunter, could have almost voted for Nixon because he looked great. He said, you had to get subjective to understand uh, Nixon and how that was. And, and one of the things that, that's very interesting is Hunter always said, I kicked him while he was up, uh, and he did. But some of the things that you when you reread Hunter uh, with you know the advantage of 50 years, you begin to see that some of the things, some of the character things that he talked about with Nixon, you could project that into saying it was those character flaws that really led to Watergate and the cover-up and the hideousness of that. And it was, it's just been very, very interesting to watch the anticipation and, and, then, and then go into that. And of course, 
get into to what they did post-election to prepare for the next election. And in those days, there was an off year. Everyone said, well, it's off year and we'll see what's done. But in this case, I don't know that there's going to be an off year. I think that I you'll be seeing presidential politics discussed on election night. It not only will be discussed on election night, if some of Trump's candidates, clear candidates, J.D. Vance will probably win regardless. He's he's Trump candidates, but he kind of he's able to get a little past it. But if Trump's candidates like Dr. Oz wins, if the guy in New Hampshire, the uh, the general Bellick, uh, beats Maggie Hansen, my God, you will say Trump has completely redefined the Republican Party in a race that had been written off. And what I found interesting was, while Trump has given comparatively little money, is $99 million in his pack, he spent $12.5 million, which is not a whole lot of money compared. But Mitch McConnell has doubled down on the New Hampshire race. And this is your next door neighbor, Curtis, on a race that everyone had written off because Trump had gotten the unelectable candidate in the primary. And they're in the margin of error right now. If that race flips, we keep talking about George and Herschel Walker. If New Hampshire goes to the Republicans, Donald Trump's hold on the GOP is absolute. Because you would say that's it. true even if he loses Pennsylvania and loses Georgia? I, I think Georgia – I don't think Georgia – anybody's going to blame him because Herschel Walker is. Pennsylvania is going to be tight on a variety of reasons. Dr. Oz is kind of an interesting thing. I think if he – first of all, I cannot see a scenario where Dr. Oz loses and they win in New Hampshire. I just I – because just, it, it, it's an environmental situation. But let's assume that happens for a second. I think some people will after uh, will, will Monday morning quarterback that there was a lot of emotional outpouring for Fetterman that he was he's sort of an everyman and he wasn't an incumbent so you couldn't go on his record other than being a small town mayor. If Hansen goes down in New Hampshire with a candidate that Chris Sununu, the very popular Republican governor, said was unelectable, and Trump championed, and McConnell financed in a race that everybody had written off. It will be like 2016. It will actually the entire there will be whiplash on the on the uh, on the what I call the punditi to re- resemble the banditi that were in uh, 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 Renaissance Italy. The punditi will come out and just say, "What the?" You'll have Chuck Todd doing a paradexum. He will not understand. <laughs> what, what would you say though? Let me ask you this: If the Trump, the high-profile Trump candidates, particularly for the Senate, mm. lose. Uh, J.D. Vance could lose in Ohio. The other ones are tossed up. Let's let's just say that those four and maybe one other high-profile, clear Trump candidates all, all lose. lose. If they all lose, the morning after, do, do, does anyone in the Republican Party start to say we cannot nominate Donald Trump? He cannot win. Yes, and I know his name. His, his name is Mitch McConnell. The day well, Mitch McConnell probably says probably that's probably his yeah. prayer when he his, goes to it, it, the, the next day. But, Mitch McConnell goes on national television and says, "We would have won the Senate, but for Donald Trump." Does that deny him the nomination? No. It it it, it, it begins the Republican civil war. Um, if Trump wins these races, McConnell will claim credit, and Trump will own the party, and everybody knows it. My question is what happens if Vance wins and maybe Oz wins and the others don't? Yeah, what if it's know, a split decision? Problem, yeah. a, split, a, a split decision always brings the debate yeah. 
you know, it's well, it's a fascinating time. It's uh, it's October in an election year. Uh, I, w- I will say that uh, I, I will be I will be fascinated. I think one of the things that's going to change, though, and we got to get used to it, is we will probably not have results election night. No, no, I think we will. We will not know. I do not think we'll know the Pennsylvania race because it's going to be close, regardless of you, for at least four or five days. Um, we probably will not know the Nevada race, which may be the deciding things, because the one non-Trump candidate who's who's really got a shot of winning. In a, in upsetting and upsetting in Democrat is Paul Laxalt. Talk about a throwback to the Nixon era. I mean, his grandfather yeah. is one of the most yes. prominent Republicans behind Nixon who's in the – I mean, it's like <laughs> what isn't old is new again. Um, and uh, uh, and so we, we, I don't think we'll know who controls the Senate. On, here's an interesting question. We might not know who controls the Senate until two weeks before – the runoff in Georgia, which is, remember, not in January this time. It's December 6th. And so early voting might be going on in Georgia, because I don't think there's going to be a clear answer in Georgia. I, I think what's going to happen is Warnock's going to get like 49, and probably um, uh, Walker's going to get like 46 or 47, probably 47. And it's going to go to a runoff. And if it goes to a runoff, we, people might be casting votes not knowing if the Republicans control the Senate or not not knowing if this is the race that's going to decide it. That I well, find that, absolutely that fascinating. <laughs> you, you will not be able to go near a broadcast TV in the state of Georgia, again, without being pulled into some kind of horrific ad. I will say that in New Hampshire, the, the Democrats have a new series of ads that they've released in the last 24 hours of the Republican talking about how to phase out Social Security. Um, and it is on wide play in the Boston market, which is, of course, part of part of yeah. the New Hampshire market. Uh, so it's uh, it's always interesting that everyone says that that uh, it's all social media. When it gets down to the last month, man, the amount of money people put into uh, negative TV ads. And I guess it's just because a friend of mine who's in that business said it's you know, there's one rule with with uh, political ads in October is either the words or the images need to be lying about your competitor. You know, it's like all finesse is off all this. You know, he's like, he, everyone, it's a, it's a monster. I think it's the, I think it's the ugliest month, but all the nuance is gone now, man. It is. Oh, no. It's, um, we always say the gloves are off, but it is, yeah. God. Maine has a governor's race that with uh, former two term governor, Paula page against the incumbent, uh, Governor Mills, and he, that is seen. He was always seen as a state level Trump. You'll remember he had a lot of choice things to say about women and other things that I won't, I won't go into. But he was always seen as a state Trump. So people have asked me, is that an indicator race for Trump? But I don't think it is. I think Mills gets high marks for the pandemic and other things that just make it a unique uh, situation and and what do you do in a state that had a two years shutdown yet has surpluses because of federal money? It's just a it's an odd situation. And I mean, our entire election season going in the next two years is odd situations, and it's and, it, and this is why we're looking forward because remember after the seventy two election, this tr- it, it, it's probably the apex kick him while he's up the apex of, of of one politician's career ever. This is Richard Nixon who narrowly lost the presidency the first time, barely won it in 68, and is now coronated. And yet, Yes, absolutely coronated. coronated. And then 
the 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 trail goes and you know you look at it and you're like boy it was the first time probably that an investigation um brought down a president and we'll just leave it there for the ominous I will, I will, tone of that I will, moving and, forward and i will say it's it changed the language of uh, the idea of gate watergate becoming it i was what brought boris johnson down it was called birthday gate this is in the uk this this was not just an american phenomenon this is all over the world and so um we leave it at that. We look forward to it. Curtis and I are going to be in D.C. next week. We'll have some uh, impacts for uh, next month's show, on, on uh, which we'll do right, you know, bef- probably before and after Election Day here on Hunter Gatherers. Always Stay tuned and be, remember to follow us. We are, we are sending out notifications when we post new episodes. Always. All right. So we will see you, ladies and gentlemen, as we get closer to Election Day and right after to get Hunter's wisdoms on where America is going 50 years hence for fear and loathing on the campaign uh, trail 72 as we do fear and loathing on the campaign trail 22. See you next week. <laughs>